Oh, it is good to be with you. Your pastor uh, has been a dear friend, particularly over these last seven years. And I believe this is my fifth time being in the church here, and I always look forward to being with you because of your worship of God and your love for the Word of God and just to spend time with my friend. We uh, are celebrating in the campus of Baptist Bible College 75 years of service to Jesus Christ. Can you imagine that? 1932. Started in Johnson City, New York. We're now on a beautiful 130-acre campus right in the top of one of the Pocono Mountains. Beautiful. But uh, we have had the privilege of impacting the lives of over 12,000 of our alum who have served Jesus Christ in various capacities in ministry uh, around the world in 47 different countries and all 50 states. And uh, this last graduation, one of the largest graduating classes in our history, we had uh, graduates from 11 different nations, all the way from AA degrees to bachelor's programs to PhDs. And uh, we're just so grateful for the impact that God is making as we seek to provide an excellent biblical education to prepare for effective ministry leadership. We have 36 different majors. We offer our bachelor's program, our grad school, and our seminary. We have uh, six different master's programs and uh, PhD in Old Testament, New Testament, systematic theology, and uh, Bible exposition. We have a table in the back that we'll be glad to share with you more about that, but I've come to preach the word and to share it with you. I love your theme for this Bible conference. When a pastor shared with me, I, I thought, Stephen, this is a great theme. Grace expectations, nourishing truth for continual growth. And uh, I want to start off by sharing with you, if you were to come to our home just around the corner from our campus, you'd find that we took the unfinished basement of our home and I, I put in my library there. My wife uh, worked so hard on that. And it's basically floor-to-ceiling, wall-to-wall books except one little area where I have one picture. The one that I've got on my wall is The Prodigal Returns by Rembrandt. How many of you have ever seen that painting? It is the most graphic and beautiful description of the prodigal coming back to the father, broken and repentant and being restored. And in that particular painting, as in all of his paintings, Rembrandt uses color and texture, but especially light, to draw you into his central focus. In that painting, it is the embrace of the father. The, the repentant son is kneeling and he is embracing him. I put that there because I want to always be reminded that it is only by God's restoring and redeeming grace that I can have a relationship with him and that I come to him as a sinner saved by grace and I want to be amazed by that every single day. This next painting, though, is another one. It's called Descent from the Cross. And what's unusual about this painting is uh, Nicodemus, as he and Joseph of Arimathea down below, are actually taking the lifeless body of our Redeemer down from the cross. That's why it's called Descent from the Cross. But what's unusual about this painting is art historians tell us that Rembrandt painted his own face into Nicodemus's face. And if you saw that up close, you would see that it is bowed both in humility and in wonder and in a sense of even mourning over his own sin that sent the Savior there. Rembrandt uh, did that with some of his other paintings. And in a sense, he painted himself into the portrait of the cross. I want to invite you, as we think about how God's faithful grace has been expressed in your life, as we think about how we can find nourishing truth for continual growth, I want you to turn with me in your Bibles to the book of 2 Timothy, particularly to the second chapter. And we're going to enter an art gallery here. Because 2 Timothy chapter 2 is a gallery, a beautiful gallery of art. 
I want to give you a little bit of background before we look at the paintings in this text. Paul is writing 2 Timothy as his last letter. He tells us at the very end of this, in the fourth chapter, that the time of his departure or his death is at hand. He has been arrested a second time, and he is in the maritime dungeon in Rome. We know from church historians that Paul was actually taken outside of the city of Rome and was beheaded for the cause of Jesus Christ, perhaps not long after writing this. He he said, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. You see, Nero, the Roman emperor wanted to do some urban renewal in Rome, and we usually think of Rome as all the marble that was there in these great buildings, but there was a lot of of wooden uh, slums in Rome. So Nero, in order to clear that, actually many historians believe lit a fire or had it lit, and Rome was burned while the populace turned on Nero. So he had to find a scapegoat to blame, and an easy target was the Christians. Now, up to that point, persecution in the Roman Empire was was more in smaller pockets, led often by Jews that had rejected the claims of Christ and would uh, turn against the believers. But now, for the first time, there's an empire-wide persecution against Christians and the power and the iron fist of Rome coming against Christians, arresting them, torturing them, incarcerating them, confiscating their property, taking them into the many colosseums and the major cities of the Roman Empire and covering them with animal skins and turning, turning wild animals loose on them for the entertainment of the crowds. They were crucified outside these cities around the Roman Empire and in Rome itself. And in Nero's gardens, he would take Christians and he would put them on posts, cover them with tar, and then at night he would light them on fire and would ride through his gardens and his chariot, listening to their screams. This was a difficult day. He's writing to Timothy, who was himself quite a fearful young man. I don't know what challenge you may be facing in your life. I know, having pastored, that there are many, many people here that are facing trials and some difficulties. Uh, You can identify with how Timothy may have felt, right? So Paul writes to Timothy, and in the four chapters of this book, gives him great help and encouragement. Chapter 2, though, is, is filled with this beautiful artistry. And I want you to notice with me that in verses 8 to 13, right in the center of the, the passage, Paul paints a portrait of Christ's faithfulness, and Paul, in essence, like Rembrandt, paints himself into the portrait. I'll follow along as I read for you, and you can see it. Paul says, remember that Jesus Christ of the seed of David was raised from the dead according to my gospel, for which I suffer trouble as an evildoer, even to the point of chains. But the word of God is not chained. Therefore I endure all things for the sake of the elect, that they may also obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Stop there for a moment and reflect with me on how Paul paints the faithfulness of Christ into these words. He mentions Christ in his names and titles, that he is Jesus, the Savior of Jehovah. And he is the Christ. He is the anointed prophet, priest, and king, fulfilling all of the prophecies and pictures in the Old Testament. He is faithful in his offices. He's also faithful in his covenant. He is of the seed of David. God had promised that there would be a seed of David that would sit upon the throne. And Christ is faithful and will continue to be faithful until he returns and sets up his kingdom on this planet. 
He's faithful in his covenant promises. He's also faithful in his resurrection. Christ told his disciples, it was prophesied in the Old Testament, that the Messiah would rise from the dead. Christ told his disciples he would do that. And he, according to Paul said, was raised from the dead according to my gospel. He is faithful in his gospel. Friend, you may have come in here today. You may be regularly visiting this church and you're in a part of your spiritual journey where you're trying to put it together. I understand where you are because that was me. I'll tell you, the gospel is good news in a bad news world. And it's the best news that's ever been heard on this planet. The good news is is that Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, died as a substitute for your sin on the cross of Calvary and rose victorious from the dead, defeating sin and hell and Satan and death. And that it is not through your reformation that you can ever have a relationship with God, but it is solely upon his grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And the good news is when a person repents from their rebellion and independence against the God that created them and has the right to rule over them and submits by faith to Christ, they find in him new life, forgiveness, cleansing, ransom, all the wonderful things we sang about. That gospel is faithful. Paul says, for that gospel, he said, I am, I am suffering even as a criminal to the point of change. But Paul's not whimpering. He is in a victorious shout. You can hear the rattle of his chains as he says, the word of God is in chain. God is faithful in his word. And I say to you today that brothers and sisters in Christ in places like China and North Korea and Vietnam and in Islamic countries that are, are being persecuted for their faith today, the word of God isn't bound in those places. The word of God is spreading. The gospel is spreading. God is faithful. So as Paul celebrates and paints the portrait of Christ's faithfulness, he, he paints himself into that. He said, this is my gospel. I am being chained, but it's, it's Christ's faithfulness in me. And then Paul changes the literary device here. In verse 11 to 13, there's a poetic structure. You can see that perhaps in your text. He said, for if we, this is a faithful saying, a trustworthy, dependable saying, if we died with him, thinking of martyrdom, we will also live with him. Because he has already risen, and we too will rise. If we endure this persecution, we shall also reign with him in his kingdom. And then a warning. If we deny him, he will also deny us a false profession of faith. If we are faithless and unbelieving, he remains faithful because he can't deny himself. Isn't it good to know that our Savior is faithful no matter what? He cannot change his character. He will not break his promises. Wherever you are in your journey, you can know that God is faithful. You can paint yourself into this portrait. We're going to look at the next, the the, the portraits around this. This is the central portrait. And out of this portrait, Christ's faithfulness and his grace flows into our lives so that we can be faithful. Now, being a college president, I can't come and preach to you without there being an assignment and an exam. You just, just wired up into higher education. So just bear with me a little bit. I want you to know there is an assignment and there will be an exam at the end of the sermon. I know you weren't planning on this, but please bear with me. Okay, here's your assignment. And I'll tell you what's going to be on the test. That's what every student wants to know. Your assignment is this. I want you to select one of these seven portraits for your life. And the exam at the end will be to you to write that down and to reflect on it in the coming week. That's pretty simple, isn't it? Look with me carefully at the seventh verse, which is the key, I believe, application verse of the entire chapter. 
Paul, after giving the first four of these portraits we're going to look at, says, consider, reflect on, meditate on what I say, and the Lord will give you understanding in all things. Picture yourself going into an art gallery and stopping and looking at the paintings and reflecting upon what the artist was trying to express. And as you do that, God says, you reflect upon these portraits, God's going to give you insight, and he's going to help you apply it to your life. So you're going to select one of those, and that's going to be the final exam. All right, are you with me? How many of you will take that assignment? Let me know. Well, good. It's been a while since some of you have had an exam. All right? Let's look at the first one of these, verses 1 and 2. You, therefore, my son. Paul wasn't Timothy's physical father, but he was his spiritual mentor. He challenges him to be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things that you've heard from me, among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Paul is saying, Timothy, listen, I have taught you, I have discipled you. Paul, second generation Timothy, among many witnesses, Titus and others that Paul mentored. Then he says, if you'll notice the text carefully, the same commit thou to faithful men. That's the third generation spiritually. Who are able to teach others also. That's the fourth generation spiritually. If you're careful in noticing verse 2, there are four generations spiritually there. My wife and I celebrated on July 14th our 35th wedding anniversary. And um, God has given to us uh, three children and now uh, soon to be 11 grandchildren. Those those of you that are grandparents understand what I'm going to say next. That if I knew grandchildren were so much fun, I would have had them first. (laughs) But it's an incredible thing to watch how in just three generations our family has grown. Last August, uh, my mother's side of the family had a family reunion. I met relatives I had never met before. And my cousin from South Carolina had done research on the genealogy of our family. Now, I've got to confess to you, I've not been that interested in genealogies. I've always felt like if you dig far enough into your family tree, you may find someone hanging from one of the limbs. So I'm not sure I wanted to know everything about all my relatives. But my cousin had done all this work, and she spread it out across seven picnic tables on big, big poster boards, all with line together, color-coded by family. And my great-grandparents, who lived in Brooklyn, New York, have 464 direct descendants in five generations. Incredible. How about you? How are you multiplying? You know, every time that you share the gospel with another person, in essence, you're multiplying. Every time you lead someone to Jesus Christ. Isn't that true? Every time you encourage and disciple and instruct a younger believer in Christ. Some of you are teaching the the Bible to children or to youth. You are multiplying yourself. Some of you are teaching the word of God to adults and, and, and you're involved in a ministry to someone else. But perhaps some of you, it's been a long time since you intentionally multiplied yourself. You say, well, I'm not perfect. I haven't arrived. None of us have. But all you have to be is further down the road than the person that you're multiplying. Paul multiplied into Timothy. Timothy multiplied into faithful men who taught others also. And we are here today because that ministry of multiplication took place. And for some of you, this is the assignment you ought to take, to say, I'm going to become intentional to paint myself into the portrait of God's grace as it strengthens me to multiply in the lives of other people. Let's look at the next one. You, therefore, must endure hardship as a good soldier 
of Jesus Christ. No one who engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life, with civilian affairs, that he may please him who's enlisted him as a soldier. Paul had right outside of his cell Roman soldiers. How many of you here have served in some aspect of the military? Can I see your hands? Thank you very much for your service to our country. But I want to just say to you that every Christian in this place is in the Lord's service, in the Lord's military. This military metaphor means that every one of us have been enlisted by Jesus Christ into a battle. A.W. Tozer, I think, well said that the, the world for the Christian is not our playground, it's our battleground. And for some of us, we need to paint ourselves into this portrait of what it means to be a soldier in Christ. What I mean by this is that you may be right now going through a time of extreme suffering, difficulty, temptation, or trial. And you may wonder, why is God allowing this in my life? I want to tell you that you're in a battle. You are in a battle. It's war. And because of that, it's difficult and it's challenging. But the good news is this. The Bible tells me that I am a more than a conqueror through Jesus Christ. That God's provided for me in Christ everything I need for that battle. And I've read the end of the Bible, and the book of Revelation is pretty clear. We win because he's already won. Isn't that true? So some of you today as soldiers need to say, okay, I'm in a battle. I need to trust the Lord. I need to tap into his grace so that I can stand. I need to not get entangled in things that would distract me from living for God through this trial and this battle. And God has that for you as your assignment to paint yourself into the portrait of what does it mean to be a soldier of Christ on the battlefield of this world. Look at the third one. If anyone competes in athletics, he is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. One of the things that I've enjoyed as a college president is uh, observing and and, uh, being a spectator to our our students who are involved in the uh, 12 different athletic endeavors we have on our campus. And during the time that uh, I've been there, we've... uh, uh, become an NCAA Division Three school, which is a pretty a significant thing for us for a small Bible college. And our men, for the very first time this year, went to the national playoff. They got beaten the first round, but they were there. They were on the court. Well, I want to tell you, it's been interesting to observe that whether it is basketball or volleyball, whether it's soccer or golf or tennis, whether it's baseball or softball, whether it's running cross country, doesn't matter. There are rules in every endeavor. And you don't win if you violate the rules. Isn't that true? You can slam the volleyball over the net, but if it goes out of bounds, it doesn't count. You can only foul five times and you're sitting in the bench. You can three strikes and you're out. There are rules in every athletic endeavor. Isn't that right? The Olympics are coming up in China and we're going to see some people who honor their country and their own endeavors by standing and receiving the gold, the silver, and the bronze, but they will not receive that if they break the rules. They won't. So Paul, who loved the athletic metaphor, he uses it in many of his epistles, uses it here in a particular way in saying this picture that you need to paint yourself into of the portrait of Christ's faithfulness is a portrait of obedience. Christ was obedient unto death, and he calls us now to a life of obedience. W.C. Fields, the agnostic, was one day found um, in his dressing room when someone came in to talk to him, and he was found to the amazement of the visitor reading a Bible. 
W.C. Fields was, was visibly embarrassed. And when his visitor asked the question, Mr. Fields, what are you doing reading a Bible? He said, I'm looking for loopholes. You know, sometimes I think that's the way we approach the Word of God. What we're going to look for is, God, what is that area of my life in which you are calling me to a new step of obedience? It's been my observation in my own spiritual journey and, and shepherding other people that God often will have an area of our life where the Word of God and the Spirit of God has got his finger on that pressure point and saying, this is the next step of obedience for you. This is the issue in your life that I'm addressing. And progressive sanctification, growth in grace, usually means that as the Spirit of God uses the Word of God to put his finger on an area of obedience, I need to respond if I'm going to someday stand before him and receive the reward, his well done, thou good and faithful servant. Some of you, that pressure point's been there for a long time. And to really get in the game spiritually, you've got to say, God, I'm willing to take that next step of obedience that you're calling me to, whatever it is in your life. And for you, that may be your assignment today. Look at the fourth of these portraits. The hardworking farmer must be first to partake of the crops. The hardworking farmer. From the age of 14 until I was um, over 18 years old, I worked on a dairy farm in upstate New York. And I want to tell you the description of a hardworking farmer. I understand a little bit about that. Our day started at 4.30 in the morning when we had to milk 100 head of cattle and, and work in the barn and then out in the field all day and then milk a second time. It would be 7 o'clock at night by the time we were done with our work. And quite frankly, I enjoyed that. It was great just uh, learning the things that I learned and being a part of that. But the best part of it is you got to actually enjoy the fruits of your labors. I mean, we were into organic and eating locally before it was a, a popular trend. We would go out in the garden that we planted and we would pick fresh corn and eat it that night or peas or beans or tomatoes or carrots. And um, we, would, we would have uh, beef and we had grown the cattle and we knew what they were fed. And I'll tell you what, you never had steak like that. It is so good. But the best of all, as far as I'm concerned, and some of you are going to look at me in disbelief when I say this, is to have milk that had not been processed. Hadn't been homogenized, hadn't been pasteurized, they hadn't re- removed the heavy cream from it. It wasn't 2%, it wasn't skim milk, it was the whole thing. And, and I'll tell you, it tastes so good. Imagine with me, though, a farmer that you knew grew vegetables. And you find him in the produce department of the store. You may wonder, what's wrong with this picture? Or a dairy farmer, and he's buying milk. Or someone that raises beef cattle and he's at the butcher shop in the, in the grocery store. It says something wrong. I'm not sure I want to partake of their crops, of their food, if they're not doing it. Paul's saying the hardworking farmer must first be partaker of the crops. Now, what does that mean in particular? It means this. Those of you that are serving Jesus Christ within the local church here, You may be a Sunday school teacher, a Bible study leader. You may be a deacon or uh, a youth worker, a leader in the church in some way. Are you first feeding your own soul? I believe that ministry is either out of the overflow of the abundance of what God's doing in our life or out of the undertow of our own carnality in any moment. And if we do feed our own soul, we're going to bless other people. And Paul's saying the hardworking farmer must first be partaker of the crops. Some of you are serving hard, but you're not taking time to regularly meet with God and nurture your own soul. And I want to encourage you. 
You need to do that. Feed your soul and you'll have something to share with other people. Well, then look with me. Down in verse 14 to 18, we find the fifth of these portraits. It is the portrait of a craftsman. Verse 15 really is the picture. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker, a craftsman, who does not need to be ashamed. There's no embarrassment because he is cutting straight. He is rightly dividing the word of truth. And in the surrounding context, you'll see how Paul is addressing the issue of false teachers and false teaching and what the impact was. He said, remind them of these things, these things he just shared about Christ and the gospel, charging them before the Lord not to strive about words that don't profit. They ruin the hearers. Verse 16, he said, shun profane and idle babblings, for they're going to actually increase to more godliness. Think of that. They were spiritual teachers. The result of their ministry was ungodly living. And their message, he said, is going to spread like cancer. And he names two of them, Hymenaeus and Philetus, are of the sort who've strayed concerning the truth, saying the resurrection has already passed, and they've overthrown the faith of some. In the middle of those warnings about false teaching, Paul says, Christians need to learn, Timothy, you need to learn how to be a craftsman in Bible study. One of the reasons I said in the introduction why I love coming to this church is because this is a church that loves and honors the Word of God. It makes the preaching of the Word central to this church. Your pastor, and I know because of my friendship with him, and I know because we invite him regularly to our campus and our Bible conference and also for chapel, that he studies hard to prepare the Word of God to make sure that he accurately interprets the Word of God and feeds up a gourmet meal spiritually for you week after week. You know, he doesn't do that as a substitute for your own Bible study. He really does that so that you'll learn to study the Bible for yourself. When I was pastoring, I never considered it a compliment when people would come to me at the end of the sermon and say, Pastor, that was a great sermon. I have no idea how you got that out of the text. I didn't consider that a compliment. What I did consider a compliment when someone would say, you showed me how to study the Bible for myself, how to observe what's in the text, how to interpret it accurately, and how to apply it to my life. Paul says you need to be a craftsman in Bible study. You need every year of your spiritual journey to become more skillful and more knowledgeable in studying the Bible. Now, for some of you, that's been a struggle. I want to recommend a book to you, and I get no royalties for this. Howard Hendricks and his son William wrote a book published by Moody Publication called Living by the Book. He took the course that he had taught on inductive Bible study at Dallas Theological Seminary and put it into a term that you don't have to be a seminarian to understand. And it is a great book that will encourage you to rightly divide the Word of God. And if you're struggling in this area and this is the portrait you choose, that's a great book for you to be able to get your hands on. Now there's two more. I want you to, uh, to notice, beginning at verse 19, he ties into that previous thought and saying, The foundation of God stands having this seal. The Lord knows those that are his. And on the other part of the seal, let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. Then he ties together that metaphor in verse 20, but in a great house, in a mansion, a wealthy home, there's not only vessels of gold and of silver, but also of wood and clay. And some are for honor and some for dishonor. You've got to understand the, the portrait here in order to understand what he's going to do next with it. You've got a very wealthy home, a mansion. And in that wealthy home, you've got different kind of vessels. You've got some that are made out of gold and silver. They are used for honored guests to set the table. 
But there's also in that home some vessels that are just earthenware. They're clay pots and they're, they're carved bowls out of wood. Uh, remember with me that in the ancient world they didn't have indoor plumbing. So vessels were used for a lot of different purposes. Some very honorable, some dishonorable. Now you probably have vessels unto honor and dishonor in your house. We do in ours. Uh, Christmas Eve, my wife takes out of the upper cupboard a set of dishes that were given to us, handed down from my grandmother Jeffrey to my mother. She gave them to my wife. And while our children were growing up, uh, my wife Bert would take those and she would serve up on Christmas Eve uh, punch and Christmas cookies on those plates. Then they would be hand washed and dried and put away again out of the children's reach for a year. Those are vessels unto honor. They're very specially used. But if you were to come into our current kitchen and you went to the island and you opened the door below, you would find vessels unto dishonor, Tupperware, (laughs) used only for leftovers. They're vessels unto dishonor. Now, what is Paul saying about this picture? What's his point? How are we to paint ourselves into this portrait? Notice in verse 21, he said, if someone cleanses himself, notice that key word cleanse from the latter, he will be a vessel unto honor. So being a vessel unto honor has to do with being cleansed or purified, sanctified, set apart from sin, and therefore useful for the master and prepared for every good work. Notice how Paul's connecting the dots for us here. He wants us to know that to be useful to God, we have to be a clean vessel. Let me illustrate this way. How many of you have ever had the experience of going into a restaurant and asking the waiter or waitress for a glass of water? You receive the glass of water, and just before you pick it up to your mouth, you look, and there's some lipstick around the rim of that glass. Now, you have two problems with that. Number one, it's not your color. Number two, you're a man. Or you pick up a fork, and just before you dig it into your meal, you look, and there is a piece of meat that didn't get cleansed in the dishwasher on the way through. Now, I hope that you will be, as a Christian, gracious towards a waiter or waitress in that situation and say to them, may I have a clean glass? I'd like to have a new fork. You'd probably not drink out of that glass, would you? Probably wouldn't eat the fork, eat it out of the fork. In the same way, why would we think that the creator of heaven and earth, the king of kings, the lord of lords, the thrice holy one, would use a vessel that's unwilling to be clean? And sometimes the reason our lives are not more used by God is because we don't take seriously his call to holiness and purity. Now, I want to encourage you with this because when we take that seriously, the good news is this, that the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. And if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us. And he washes us with the washing of water by the word. So God's made every provision for the repentant, confessing, sinning Christian to come to him and be cleansed and forgiven. And Paul brings it home in verse 22. He says, flee, run away from youthful lusts, but run after, pursue righteousness, which is a life that conforms to the character of Christ and his commands. Run after faith, a life of humble dependence on God. Run after love, a life of sacrifice to obey God and serve others. Run after peace, a life of submission to the sovereignty of God. Run after that with others who are calling on the Lord out of a pure heart. For some of us, this portrait really is what the Spirit of God is pointing you to and saying, I want you to meditate upon this. I want you to take seriously the call to purity. I just know that that there's probably people here that if the truth were told about your life, that there's some secret areas that you'd be embarrassed to have exposed. 
God already knows about that. His eyes are already on it. And he's calling you to a life of purity and a life of being cleansed. To be a vessel unto honor, to be used by God, you have to take seriously his call to a holy life, a life of purity. You can't have it both ways. It says this is one of the portraits we need to paint ourselves into. And there's one final one. Look at verse 23. Paul says, but Timothy, avoid foolish and ignorant disputes, conflicts, knowing that they just generate strife. And a servant of the Lord, that's this last one, the servant must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach and be patient. Notice the attitude that he's to have. Uh, not quarrelsome, gentle, patient, in humility. And notice the aim, correcting those who are in opposition, if God perhaps will grant them repentance, that they may know the truth. God's the one that has to change their mind and heart. That they may come to their senses, they're, they're intoxicated with lies, that they may come to their senses and be sobered up to truth and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. The last portrait that we see of the faithfulness of Christ in our lives is a portrait of a servant. You see, it was Paul that, who, even though he considered himself to be religious and spiritual, was a very proud man. Until he was arrested by Christ on the road to Damascus and God began to change him and give him a life to be a humble servant. It was Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that penned Philippians 2, 5 to 11, let this mind be in you which is also in Christ Jesus. And God has called us to be servants to one another, to have an attitude of a servant. Think with me about this scene. Jesus has directed his disciples to go and select a rented room in Jerusalem where they could celebrate the last Passover. As a part of that, as part of the culture, there would have been a, a basin of, for water and a towel. Because in the ancient world, people walked on, in a very dry, arid kind of a uh, climate and dirt roads and all kinds of animals left things on the roads. And, and you would arrive at someone's house and, and there would be, if they were wealthy, a servant positioned at the door with the towel in the basin to take off your sandals and to wash and soothe your feet and dry them with a the towel. If there wasn't a servant, a family member would volunteer. Now, the disciples understood the culture, and they understood what it meant. Imagine with me, as they come into the upper room, 12 disciples walk by the basin and the towel. I don't know what was going on in their minds at that point. Uh, Peter may have been thinking, uh, I'm kind of the lead guy here. I I'm not going to do feet. Thomas may have thought, I doubt I'll wash feet. I don't know what they were thinking. What I know is this, though. You have a room filled with 12 disciples with proud hearts and dirty feet. And at that moment, while they're discussing who's the greatest, the one who is the greatest lays aside his garment, girds himself with a towel, and begins to wash the dirty feet of Judas, who would betray him, of Peter, who would deny him, of Thomas, who would doubt him of all of them that would flee from him. You ever been hurt by somebody? Disappointed in somebody? In conflict with somebody? If we're Christ followers, Paul's saying here, paint yourself under the portrait of what it means to be a servant. This applies to your marriage, by the way, to your parenting, to your relationships in the body and at work. Are you willing to paint yourself under the portrait of being a servant? Well, it's time to take the final exam, all right? So take your...
paper and uh, choose one. Any one of them. It's a multiple choice exam. But you choose one. Is it the son and God saying to you, I need to get intentional in multiplying what God's done in my life and someone else's life. And God may have already put a ministry or an individual on your heart to do that. Choose that one. It may be that you're in a battle right now and God just wanted to encourage you that, that, that that's real and that he can provide for you in that battle. You're the soldier. Maybe that that area of obedience that you've been trying to look the other way from and God has just kept putting his finger on and as an athlete, you, you must obey in order to be crowned. Well, the hardworking farmer, you're a faithful servant of God in the church, but you're not feeding your own soul. God's challenging you with that today. Maybe your only time of spiritual feeding is when you come to church and God's saying you need to become a craftsman in Bible study yourself. Learn to study the word of God. For others, it may be taking seriously the claim to purity so that you might be a vessel into honor. Or it just may be in those conflicts going on in your life that God's asking you to do exactly what our Savior did in the upper room to become a servant. Father in heaven, thank you for the beautiful artistry of your word Thank you for the faithfulness of our Savior in his person, in his promises, in his gospel, in his word, in his saving work. Thank you that even when we believe not, yet he is faithful. And thank you that you, by your faithfulness, make it possible through your grace for us to be faithful. So, Lord, help us to be faithful sons and soldiers and athletes and farmers and craftsmen and vessels and servants that when people see us they may see the portrait of the faithfulness of our Savior in Jesus name